This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries, sponsored this month by the Wholesale Outlet Warehouse in Akron, Ohio. You're listening to a clip of Date Trippin' by Hayden Brook, a singer-songwriter from Youngstown, Ohio. Hayden is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about him and let you hear that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Tonight's mystery is a case that has haunted Northeast Ohio for more than half a century. As old as this case is, it's amazing how many people still remember it. I've had people bring it up to me multiple times. So although we are overdue on this one, I present to you Tonight, the puzzling and brutally savage case of Beverly Jaros. Beverly was a 16-year-old high school junior, and she woke up in the bedroom of her Thornton Avenue home in Garfield Heights on December 28, 1964, having no way of knowing she was going to die in that bedroom just a few short hours later. It was the Monday after Christmas, And Beverly and her 12-year-old sister, Carol, were still enjoying their holiday break. Since their parents, Ted and Eleanor, had to go to work, the girls decided to have lunch with their grandparents. They walked a mile to their home, stopping along the way at a shopping center to purchase a hairnet for Grandma and a loaf of bread. While at Grandma's house, Beverly called her friends, Barb and Margie, to confirm plans they had already made to hang out that afternoon. Maybe even go do a little post-holiday shopping. Barb would swing by Beverly's house between 1 and 2 p.m., and the pair would go together to Margie's. And so just after noon, Beverly said goodbye to her sister and her grandparents and accepted a ride from a neighbor boy who took her back home. Between 12.30 and 1.20 p.m., there are several phone calls to and from the Jarreau's household. A jeweler called to say great-grandma's necklace wasn't worth fixing. Beverly called her mom at work to relay the news. 
Beverly then called Barb to let her know she was getting ready. The phone rang again, this time a man asking for Beverly's dad. Beverly left a note for her father saying, Stephen Stackowitz called, and he'll try back later. Stephen Stackowitz, police will learn, is a fake name. At 1.20, Beverly's grandma called to make sure her granddaughter arrived at home okay. Beverly rushed her off the phone saying she heard Barb at the door and she needed to finish getting changed. Someone was at the door all right, but it wasn't Barb because Barb arrived five minutes later. At 1.25 p.m., Barb was dropped off at the house by her mother. She went to the side door and found it ajar, but the storm door was locked. A radio inside was blaring. Barb went to the front door, rang the bell a few times, and when nobody answered, she sat down on the porch and leafed through a magazine. She heard what sounded like furniture being moved around upstairs. After several minutes, when nobody responded to the doorbell, Barb decided she was either being stood up or teased. So she left and went back home. Over the next half hour, Barb and Margie, confused by Beverly's absence, traded phone calls. And then at 3.45 p.m., Margie finally called Beverly's grandma to see if her friend was over there. She wasn't. Another phone call this time from the grandma to Ted Jaros, telling him that Beverly failed to keep a date with friends and he'd better go home to check on her. Ted arrived home around 4 p.m., immediately sensing something was wrong. That loud radio inside could be heard from the driveway. Ted bounded into the house and ran up the stairs. He found Beverly in her blood-spattered bedroom. The phone rang again, this time the younger sister Carol trying to learn if Beverly was okay. All she heard was her father on the other end screaming, murder! Beverly had been strangled by a cord, most commonly used as a window sash. It didn't belong in the house. The killer had brought it with him. It was tied in a square knot and pulled so taut it had snapped. Beverly's feet were also bound. She had also been stabbed some 40 times, many of the cuts to her face and neck. There were defensive wounds, too, on her hands and arms. Beverly had fought for her life. A small piece of rope was entangled in Beverly's fingers. Detectives determined she had likely been holding the rope when it was cut during the knife attack. She was not sexually assaulted, but she was nude from the waist down, Cuyahoga County Coroner Sam Gerber, the very guy who had to deal with the gruesome Cleveland Torso murders back in the 1930s, told reporters that the crime scene in Beverly's bedroom was, quote, as vicious a crime scene as I have seen in my 29 years as a coroner. Police searched the neighborhood from rooftops to skating pond looking for clues. That first day, they logged more than 100 interviews. Authorities decided Beverly was likely being attacked while her friend Barb was ringing the doorbell. The loud radio inside was almost certainly turned up to mask Beverly's screams. There was something strange in the bedroom that has stymied police. In her ceiling was a hole 
the size of a basketball, torn inward as if a huge object had fallen into her bedroom. I could not find any indication police had figured out what made that hole. Investigators had reason to wonder if Beverly's killer had been stalking her possibly for months. In the weeks before her death, someone had left one or more gifts for her. At least one was a box with a couple pieces of jewelry tucked between the screen door and the back door. It scared Beverly enough that she drew the blinds in the house when she received it. There were also some suspicions about some telephone hang-ups in recent weeks. As a matter of fact, Beverly had taken to locking the doors of the house whenever she was home, which is why police are fairly certain Beverly opened the side door, probably thinking Barb had arrived, was confronted by her killer, and retreated to her bedroom where the assault took place. Because the back door of the home was also unlocked and rarely used, police believe the killer ran out that door. And a little late, police learned something important was missing from the home. Beverly kept a diary by her bed. The family only realized the diary was gone later, after the bedroom had been cleaned by a couple of aunts. While there is a chance the diary was thrown out during the cleaning process, the family believes it was more than likely taken by the killer. Police interviewed a lot of boys in the area. One that has remained on their suspect list to this day was 17 at the time. Within a year of Beverly's murder, that boy will be arrested and serve time for stabbing a pregnant woman in Illyria while acting as a door-to-door salesman. They say he was borderline genius, but also spent time as a youth in a mental institution. As an adult, he added to his rap sheet from breaking and entering to stealing investments under the guise of being an accountant. A couple of years ago, Shane Waters, who did a series on the Beverly Jarrows case for his podcast, American Crime Cast, said he learned that that boy, now in his early 70s, of course, was in another country and out of the reach of authorities here who wanted to question him on this and other crimes. Garfield Heights police renewed their request for info on the case a few years ago, and at that time, they said there were actually two prime suspects, but they needed a key piece of puzzle to fall into place. Turns out, they found a partial DNA profile that was left on the rope, but it was so small that they decided they needed to wait for technology to advance a little bit more before they are willing to risk testing it. Anyway, back when the murder happened, it became a textbook case for sensationalized news. The family reported people trespassed onto the property to remove pieces of the house as souvenirs. Seven years after the murder, the home was broken into when the family was away at a funeral. A gold watch was stolen, and two reproduction paintings that Beverly loved had been disturbed by having their backs ripped out of the frames. Over the last five decades, podcasts and books have been produced about this case, but one book gave the family more peace than pain. You see, Beverly loved to write poetry. For Christmas, 
three days before her life was taken, she received a blank composition book and a promise from her father that if she filled that book with her poetry, he would send it to a New York publisher. She didn't have the chance to start that book, but she did already have a compilation of poems she had done. Those poems were organized into a book that was accepted by the Library of Congress. One poem in that book stands out. It was written just a few months before her death. From the depths of my soul there arises a certain fear. What if I should die within the next year? Life for me has just begun. All my dreams would be unfulfilled. All my work left undone. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Well, every Sunday, we like to invite an Ohio Mysteries listener on board as an armchair detective. But first, let me tell you about tonight's sponsor. For the month of May, Ohio Mysteries is being sponsored by WOW. That's the Wholesale Outlet Warehouse at 144 North Canton Road in Akron, selling name brand clothes, toys, furnitures, and more, usually at least 50% off. And I'm telling you, at least 50% off. Some of their stuff is 70, 80% off. It's fantastic. Now, WOW is doing something pretty creative for the folks who do not want to leave their home. Every Thursday at 6 p.m., owner Brian is doing an interactive live streaming sales event, sort of like those cable shopping network programs and right now they are also focusing on women's health and beauty think hair care appliances razors bath salts cosmetics ladies apparel so here's what you do thursday at 6 p.m grab whatever device connects you to the internet go to jatango.com that's j-a-t-a-n-g-o.com click on the wall window and start shopping And right now during this pandemic, some businesses have to think outside of the box, and that's exactly what Brian is doing. You do not have to be local to get in on these deals. You can be anywhere in the United States. Log in, get some fantastic deals, let Brian know that Ohio Mysteries sent you. Have fun shopping. Joining us tonight is Erin Yoder. Erin is Steve's wife, and she has been uh, patiently waiting almost two years for her chance to play Armchair Detective. Hi, Erin. Hi, I'm Paula. 
So good to have you with us finally. I know. I'm pretty excited about being on here. It's taken me a while. I didn't want to like take any other places for any other armchair detectives. Well, you're you're made for this because you are a very smart and opinionated lady, and I know you're going to have a lot to say. This case is just a classic one. Had you heard of this one before? I did see some stuff about it when I was looking up other podcast information for you guys, and I was also looking up different stories in the area and seeing if there were other women who had been missing or murdered. I read stories. I read a lot of articles, like a lot. And I really wanted to talk to the gentleman, um, the police officer who was researching this, but I didn't want to overstep. And I thought that might be a bit since I'm not like an actual detective. Yeah, I we have had some armchair detectives actually do just that. <laughs> we don't We don't set the rules. Folks, if you're going to be an armchair detective, you're free to do whatever you would. But absolutely, I get it. What What do you want to talk about this case? What stands out to you? The brutality of this, for especially for that time period. Like, the 60s wasn't that violent. It's not like, you know, um, the later 60s and early 70s. This was a pretty simple time in a pretty simple area. You know, we're talking like a white you know, a super white suburban home with two parents. Oddly, though, the mom worked. That is one thing that's odd for that time period is she worked. Yeah, that that's true. And you're right. The 60s uh, in my head seem a lot better than the 70s in terms of stranger killings, you know, that kind of thing. I think it's not a stranger killing. I'm going to tell you, I do not feel like it was a young man. I do not feel like this, like one of the things I noticed in this, and I've listened to a lot of podcasts, you know, of course, my husband uh, (laughs) listens to a lot of podcasts. So one of the things that I picked up on this, this was not a stranger killing. This was somebody who knew her father because he called. I really feel like this is somebody that she knew Maybe not super well, but relatively well enough where she would feel comfortable enough to open the door. Now, you don't think it was a stranger. What makes you think that she knew this man? A couple reasons. Number one, the phone message left for her dad. He knew her dad wasn't home. He knew that her dad was doing something. I don't know what, but he knew it wasn't going to happen. I just assumed that was his way of making sure that she was alone. It was very easy to get a phone number of somebody back in the 60s unless you paid the phone company to keep your phone number private. It was everybody's phone number was open. So I just assumed he would have looked her number up, got her number during the stalking process and just called just to make sure that she was home. Had this been a different time period, I would have said that somebody had a camera and they're watching her. Because when they took apart that those frames, yes. they took something off the back. That, that, to me, says, now, if it was in today's time period, I would have said they had a camera in there watching her. Yeah. I, what did they get from the back? I mean, it almost sounded like somebody expected to find something in the back of a, of a painting that they would rip the back off. I wonder if her dad wasn't hiding something, not about her, but something completely separate that, that somebody knew about. Because oh. stabbing was a su- is super super personal. 
you know, it is really hard. I know this sounds terrible to shoot somebody, but by all accounts and all, you know, the stuff that we've read by psychologists, stabbing is really up close and personal. You have to literally, especially 40 times, you literally have to be severely angry or really want that person dead in order to stab somebody in her, like, you know, in a where she's looking at you. Right. I think that they had totally planned to have the, the few hours do terrible stuff to her and knew that her dad wouldn't be home until later. He didn't expect her friend. And I think that's why he didn't get the chance to rape her because the bottom part of her clothes was pulled off. That would fall in line with right around that time that he got in the house, got her upstairs, and then her friend heard the struggling because he was pulling her clothes off. Then her friend was knocking and wouldn't leave, which I'm sure added to the frustration of stabbing, like the the anger, because he was interrupted in what he was doing. This isn't something a 22-year-old kid is going to do, typically. This is something an older gentleman, like this person had it planned. This was more than, like they never, and the fact that there was no, nothing outside of the house to indicate that man ever left, he knew enough to wash off. He either brought a set of clothes or something because they never found clues. And that doesn't make sense. You're walking in a, in a white suburban neighborhood with all of these people around and you have blood all over you and somehow nobody saw that. That's not possible. I think you've really done a great job explaining the motive here because, you know, I think one question when you hear this story is, what was the purpose? What is, what is the purpose of going to this house, going up to this teenage girl's bedroom and in a rage stabbing at her death and leaving? So your theory is it was all about rape. He knew that she was home alone. He brought his own uh, sash to bind her with. And nice. But Barb's... Uh, repeated doorbell ringing scared him enough that he decided, you know, the, the radio was extremely loud. Beverly may have been screaming. He might've thought he couldn't chance it. Maybe Barb had heard the screams. He had to hurry up and end it and get out of there. They had another suspect that actually confessed to the, to the killing. Um, he was the one who kidnapped a seven year old girl and he supposedly confessed to Beverly's murder as well. But it doesn't make sense to kidnap a seven-year-old. He blinded her. Um, he did some terrible, terrible, terrible things to that girl. But, but that is a completely separate crime than the, the stalking and the passion that this person, obsession that they had with Beverly, like they gave her gifts. They did, that, that's not the same as a um, sad attempt to kidnap somebody and then do terrible things to them and, and screw up as badly as this guy did, like, you know, he, he didn't even, he tried to kill her, but he ended up not killing her. He ended up blinding her. Like it was, what he did was terrible, but it was a, like a constant screw up, you know, for lack of a better way to put it. And they say men who are sexual predators usually have a very similar age range for their attacks. And a man who's interested in seven-year-olds probably is not the same kind of man that's going to be interested in stalking a, a 16-year-old. Right. Just, I mean, I'm no expert, but just right. from, you know, what I read about cases. So, yeah. 
and and it's a, and with also the other thing Beverly is she she did fight back. They never once said that the people that they questioned had injuries. If she fought back, they would have had injuries. So the people that they're talking about that they they did talk to at one point or another would have had some form of injury on them. And nothing was ever mentioned about the suspects ever having injuries that I read. So that doesn't make sense to me either. What do you think about that basketball-sized hole in the bedroom ceiling? Is there something relevant going on there? Why is there, like, I think that maybe, I mean, somebody was watching her or something had to have. Why else take those paintings unless there somebody, maybe they hid the murder weapon behind those paintings because the dad never moved. He left the house that way for 30 years until he died. He lived in that home after he and his wife divorced and the girls were gone. And he, he lived there for 30 years and that room was never touched again after it was cleaned. Now, the DNA evidence that they do have, I was really disappointed that that's the only DNA evidence they had. I mean, I know they weren't specifically collecting for DNA, so the only DNA evidence that we could have is what they might have gotten accidentally. And they did get a tiny partial profile off the rope, and I was so bummed that there wasn't more than that because... You can't savagely stab somebody 40 times and not leave something of yourself behind. You right. just can't. But, oh, my gosh, how much more does technology have to advance to get that tested? You know, they say when you you know you have these very tiny samples, you might only get one crack at it because you have to destroy the sample to test it. And, oh, it's just heartbreaking to have it sitting there and you're waiting for it to time to catch up. Have you ever, like, taken a knife to a watermelon, like, tried to cut it open? It is really, really hard. Well, if you don't, if you have a knife that doesn't have, like, a handle with a stopper, sometimes your hand can slide down. You know how many people actually get cut doing that? So, trying to cut a watermelon, like, they stab it, you know? Absolutely. So, a lot of people do that. That's the thing that's really unusual as well about this case is, there's no, there's no injuries to the, the suspects that they picked, which they should have. Stabbing somebody 40 times, he should have had some kind of cuts. I mean, they said that she fought. He should have had some kind of damage to something. Yeah, the, the music angle to this is just so, I don't know, there's such a creep factor to that. The idea of that poor girl screaming and nobody being able to hear her because he's turned that radio up. It's, yeah. uh and I get chills when I think of that. As well, from her friend. You know, knowing that she was being pulled around that room. That poor Barb. I can't, oh my gosh, that poor Barb. I mean, obviously, nothing, she didn't do anything wrong. But she had to live the rest of her life knowing she was probably sitting on that porch while her friend was getting killed. Oh, that poor thing. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. You should have been a detective. I like the way your mind thinks. Good job. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate that. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist, Hayden Brooke is an indie folk rock musical artist from the city of Youngstown, Ohio, 
We featured the song Day Trippin' tonight. The artist said that's a story that was inspired by a breakup with his girlfriend and how LSD brought her and his ex-best friend together. Apparently, that couple is happily married now. Hayden is also involved with a band called Sister Luna, L-U-N-A, if you're going to look this up. They are currently recording the first release. You can check out demos and follow the progress of that album by searching Sister Luna on Patreon.com. Meanwhile, during this pandemic, Hayden and Sister Luna have been participating in a weekly live stream at a recording studio called The Crow's Nest. You can watch those performances by going to either Facebook or YouTube and searching for Sister Luna's page. Well, let's have another listen to Day Trippin' by Hayden Brook. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. 
We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.